welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. This is uh, News in Focus. You're listening to a special Christmas edition. We have our good friend Bill Fetter from the American Minute with us on the phone. And that, you just heard, was from George Frederick Handel's Messiah. And in 1741, he wrote this wonderful Christmas sacred piece. And it is a favorite at our house every Christmas season to hear all of Frederick Handel Messiah's Messiah. And, of course, what happened, he actually closed himself up into a room, wrote it all in one setting, and said it is if I'd seen the heavens open and saw all of the glory of God in front of me as he was writing uh, Handel's Messiah, which has been a great uh, sacred piece all these years. We're going to talk about the great famous composers and the sacred Christian music. We're going to talk about uh, Johann Sebastian Bach and Ludwig von Beethoven, Joseph Haydn, and of course many more with our good friend Bill Fetter. Bill, welcome to the program and Merry Christmas to you and your family. Chris, great to be with you. Good to be with you. Did you have a great Christmas with the family? Yes, yes, thank you. Well, it's so good to have you, and and of course, um, uh, we en- enjoy exchanging Christmas cards with you and your wife, and uh, that's one of the great traditions of Christmas, of course. And uh, it's so great to receive the American Minute when you're talking about the great Christmas traditions. But tell us about the great composers and of course they they the great christian sacred music that they wrote well one of the first is johann sebastian bach and he was born in eisenbach germany and lo and behold he went to st george's parochial latin school where none other than martin luther had gone over a century earlier and so bach was considered the one of the first ones that would write and compose on a organ and then a harpsichord and he studied the luther's catechism and uh so he wrote the passion of our lord jesus christ according to the evangelist saint matthew uh they would most of the music was sacred music and then bach wrote another one called saint john's passion based on the book of john and then martin luther's translation and uh some of these were put to music by felix mendelssohn 
who was the grandson of the famous Jewish philosopher Moses Mendelssohn. And so Box was considered the master of the masters, and uh, he wrote lots of different uh, Christmas oratios and things like that. Um, the other was the uh, Almighty Fortress is Our God, was one of the ones that he took Martin Luther's famous hymn, Ein Festburg ist unser Gott, and put it to music. Uh, Bach then was followed by Beethoven, and Beethoven uh, was born in um, Germany. Uh, he was Bonn, B-O-N-N, and Bach lived during the Baroque period. Beethoven lived during the classical and romantic eras. This basically corresponds to the first great awakening going on in America. And Beethoven studied Hayden, H-A-Y-D-E-N, and Hayden performed on Christmas Day uh, in 1781 during the reign of Austrian Emperor Joseph II, and visiting was the Grand Duke of Russia. And there in the audience was none other than Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, who was just a young boy. And he had performed the night before. Mozart was so gifted, he would go home and write out the entire symphony uh, that he would have heard. Uh, the, the whole co uh, composition, he could do it all by memory. Um, now, Felix Mendelssohn was the one who took Charles Wesley's hymn and um, put it to music. And so Charles Wesley wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing, but it was put to music by Felix Mendelssohn. And then you had another one called Franz Litt, L-S-I-Z-T, and he wrote the Christmas Tree Suite. And another one was Franz Schubert, and he wrote the, the famous song Ave Maria. And um, Beethoven was taught to play music by his father, who became an alcoholic. And so he had a rough life growing up. Beethoven started going deaf at the age of 26. And um, one of the stories was that when Napoleon was bombarding one of the cities that he was in, that uh, Beethoven went into the basement and covered his head with a pillow because he didn't want to lose any more of his hearing than he already had. Um, the uh, One of the sad things was that they had a class system in Europe where if you were in the upper class you would only marry somebody in that class and not someone who was lower. So Beethoven was giving piano lessons to the daughter of a Hungarian countess, and they fell in love. Uh, the daughter's name was Josephine, but she was not allowed to marry Beethoven because he was in a lower class. He was a piano teacher, and she's the daughter of this you know, royalty. They wrote at least 15 love letters together, but... Uh, he was not allowed to marry her, and then she was married off to somebody else and had a really sad life. Um, and Beethoven wrote one of his, his Moonlight Sonata, number 14, to remember her. And uh, it's interesting that you would think of somebody as famous as Beethoven, but here he, he couldn't even marry uh, someone that he loved. Uh, in 1801, Beethoven wrote, No friend have I, I must live myself alone, but I know well that uh, that God is nearer to me than in others in my art, so I will walk fearlessly with him. Mm. Uh, Be Beethoven composed his third symphony and dedicated it to Napoleon, 
Napoleon at first was known for getting rid of these monarchs. And everybody thought, gee, uh, it's going to be like America and the people will be free. And then when Napoleon decided to make himself emperor and put the crown on his own head, Beethoven was so upset that he scratched Napoleon's name off the Third Symphony so violently that it tore a hole in the paper. <laughs> and um, so the uh, uh, Beethoven had a brother who contracted tuberculosis, and Beethoven spent money taking care of him and then his son, and uh, encouraged his son to marry the girl that he was living with. And uh, but he did write some of the world's famous sonatas. Uh, he met uh, Johann uh, Wolfgang von Goethe, the famous author. By the time he finished his Ninth Symphony, that one that we're all familiar with, da 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 da, um, Beethoven was completely deaf. And so uh, when everyone was clapping at the performance, um, he turned around to see the audience. And he could see them all clapping, but he couldn't hear anything, and so he wept. But um, Beethoven's Ninth Symphony was made into a choral setting by Frederick Schiller, and it was called Ode to Joy, and it became the anthem of the European Union in 1972. Um, but then, of all things, it was made the uh, music to Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee which was written by Princeton professor Henry Van Dyke. So joyful, joyful, we adore thee. And um, so just, just a little bit of history. Uh, Beethoven uh, died when he was 56 years old. And at the moment of his death, there was an immense peal of thunder. And um, Brahms, Johannes Brahms, another composer, made a marble bust of Beethoven and put it in his... Um, place where he would make up his um, songs. And Brahm is known for doing the lullaby song and uh, that you would sing to little children. Just some interesting stuff, but this is all going on. Uh, you know, when you got the American Revolution and the War of 1812 and then Napoleon and all that, uh, here are these composers writing beautiful music. Uh, one was Tchaikovsky. Uh, he was inspired by Beethoven and Mozart and even acknowledged them in his uh, biography. But um, he says, from time to time, though, I would set about studying a Beethoven symphony. How strange. I was filled with a burning desire to write a symphony, a desire which would erupt afresh each time that I came into contact with Beethoven's music. And of course, Tchaikovsky wrote the Nutcracker Suite, performed for the first time in 1892. Now, this was shortly before the uh, Lenin's Bolshevik Revolution. And um, socialist leader Lenin wrote in 1924, I know nothing better than Beethoven's Appassionata, and I could listen to it every day. And Lenin goes on, what astonishing superhuman music. It makes me proud, perhaps with a childish naivete, to think that people can work such miracles. But I can't listen to music very often. It affects my nerves. I want to say sweet, silly things and pat the little heads of people who living in filthy hell can create such beauty. These days, one can't pat anyone on the head nowadays. They might bite your hand off. Hence, you have to beat people's little heads, beat mercilessly, although ideally we are against doing any violence to people. Hmm, what a devilish, difficult job. That was Lenin. <laughs> Lenin said, I can't listen to Beethoven. It makes me want to be nice to people. <laughs> and um, 
Anyway, you know, Bill, then, when we uh, when we think of the inspiration that came to these very gifted composers in a short amount of time, in a very localized area of the world, in just two hundred years, this wonderful genius of music of these composers, uh, the inspiration in that small geographical area that has been with us down through the ages, and as you have just described, uh, of the which has given us the great sacred hymns of our faith, and of course uh, the great composers and the sacred music that they produced, and the great influence that it has had. When we think of other faiths outside of Christianity, uh, singing and music is not one of them uh, that that is notable uh, because it is in the Christian faith, from the Judean Christian culture, of which there is praise, in which there is adoration to God, and thanksgiving and adoration to Him, and this is, comes out of a heart of gratitude. And uh, to hear the faith of the composers is so inspiring. Your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I can't help but to talk about Charles Wesley and how he did write "Hark the Herald Angels Sing," and he and his brother John Wesley uh, helped found the Methodist movement and uh, just really sparked revival around the world. And then you have the um, uh, Revolutionary War, and the most popular Christmas carol during the Revolutionary War was called New Christmas Carol, written in 1760, and we know it by the first line, God rest ye married gentlemen, and it goes on, let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power. When we were gone astray, oh, tidings of comfort and joy. That's a nice one to remember. And uh, we can't forget Silent Night. And so the the, the story is in that in the uh, early 1800s, you had a church in Austria, Salzburg, Austria area. Um, and it was Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1818. And they were about to have their big Christmas service in this uh, city, and the organ stopped working. Um, there's stories that maybe a, some mice had eaten through the bellows. So they didn't have uh, any type of electricity to run any pump to pump the air through these organs. You would have the uh, organist would have these pedals and would like pump them with his feet, and it would uh, have the leather uh, between two pieces of wood, go back and forth and back and forth and uh, pump the air through there. And evidently that was broken. So the priest, Father Joseph Moore, M-O-H-R, um, uh, wrote the poem, Silent Night. And then Austrian headmaster, Franz Xavier Gruber, put it to music. And it was uh, the, the song that we all know, Silent night, holy night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender, mild sleep in heavenly peace, and Christ the Savior is born, and uh, Jesus Lord at thy birth. And so this was translated into nearly every language in Europe, for over 44 languages. And uh, during World War One, uh, in 1914, before America got into the war, you had the Germans on one side and the English, French, Dutch, and Belgium on the other side. And on Christmas Eve, the Germans started singing Silent Night. And then the 
French and the English started singing it back, and then they crawled out of their um, dugout trenches, and then they walked to the middle of the field, and then they had an unofficial Christmas truce, and they agreed not to shoot each other for a day. And then they played soccer, and they were cutting each other's hair and, and eating together and having joint funerals together. And, um, and then, of course, the next day when the commanding officers found out about it, they um, uh, rebuked all the soldiers and said, don't fraternize with the enemy. And um, But that's uh, one of those instances, the Christmas truce of 1914 that we all have to remember. You know, and I saw that, in, and we sent that out to our list, the American Minute. And, you know, a lot of folks really like that American Minute with the Christmas truce. And when you look at the details of that, how they exchange uh, food and they exchange pictures of each other's families, and they sang together and they played sports together and even buried the dead together that was out in no man's land, that they would have services for the dead in no man's land. You know, Bill, that was really something. That was really incredible. Well, it was. And uh, it reminds us that a lot of times you have, you know, kings and globalist powers wanting to push an agenda, but it's the common people on the ground that have to give their lives. And when the the common people meet their enemy, it's like, why are we fighting each other? And it's... um, you know, it, it's interesting to see how there's a lot of manipulation going on. Uh, you know, one of the other songs is uh, called Oh Holy Night. And it was, um, there was a, a poet named Palisade Capu, C-A-P-P-E-A-U, and he wrote it. And it was set to music by uh, Adolphe Adam. And uh, that's the famous Oh Holy Night song. And um, there was a, the English version that we all sing was written in 1855 by John Sullivan Dwight. And uh, can't help but mention the play Christmas Carol written by Charles Dickens in 1843. 6,000 copies were sold the first day it came off the press. The Christmas Carol with Scrooge and everything. And it was the famous story of redemption. It had the gospel message in there. And uh, the last line from Tiny Tim to uh, Scrooge, you know, God bless you, um, and uh, God blesses everyone. There was an interesting uh, Supreme Court decision back in 1948, McCollum versus Board of Education, and Justice Robert Jackson wrote, it would not seem practical to teach the arts if we were to forbid exposure of youth to any religious influences. Music without sacred music would be incomplete even from a secular point of view. Mm. So if you're going to study the history of music, you have to study religious music because it was so integral in the development of, of all of the arts. You know, the Christmas Carol, of course, uh, uh, is such a great tradition of, of course, the movie to be able to play that by Charles Dickens each Christmas at our home. And it's such a great tribute and a great uh, tradition that we have. Uh, We're talking to Bill Fetter of the American Minute, and you can get the American Minute every day in your inbox as Bill sends out an email. Bill, tell us how folks can get the American Minute. Well, it's uh, written every day, and it uh, covers all of the span of history, but it always tries to bring out the faith that the uh, was going on that motivated people and 
Uh, you know, here's like a quote from Johann Sebastian Bach. He says, the aim and final end of all music should be none other than the glory of God and the refreshment of the soul. If he does not pay to this, it is not true music, but a diabolical bawling and twanging. So here's boxing. We got to have music be to the glory of God. Otherwise, there's going to be a diabolical bawling and twanging. Um, but AmericanMinute.com uh, is where you can sign up. Uh, a sort of sad thing is uh, Bach, when he was older, had cataract surgery, but they had not perfected it yet. And he went blind. Um, and then also, uh, same thing happened to Handel. Uh, George Friedrich Handel, uh, he too had um, eye surgery to remove cataracts, and he went blind. And um, so, um, got to think twice before you have. Uh, back then, it was a, uh, a quack surgeon that uh, performed it. We're but, not trying to dissuade uh, anyone from having cataract surgery as medicine has they, really advanced, but it was a risky venture back in the day. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, they've, they've, they've advanced it. So it's all, it's all good now. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it, it the, the, the people that we uh, look back in history to, they lived in tough times. Even George Washington, um, he did not have proper tooth care. And by the time he died, he had none of his tooth left. I mean, during the whole Revolutionary War, he was always in tooth pain. During his whole term as president, he was always in tooth pain. And, um, and so, you know, they, but the, the dollar bill, the picture of George Washington, they had, actually had to stuff cotton under his lips to be able to hold his lips up so they could draw the paint, the picture to, that eventually went on our dollar bill. So it was a tough life that they lived back then. They didn't have the medical care we have today. And, um, well, listen, Bill, uh, real quick, I want to thank you for being on the program today. Again, we're talking with Bill Fetter, theamericanminute.com, and you get all of Bill's books there. There's a, there is a real Santa Claus, uh, also uh, Miracles in American History, and Believe is some of the latest books by Bill, and of course, America's God and Country. Bill, thanks so much for being on the program with us today. Thank you, Chris. God bless you. Thank you, my friend. And one of the traditions at the Long Household on Christmas night is to sing Christmas carols and to play Christmas music. And here's my wife, Sylvia, on violin and our son-in-law, Steve, on piano, playing What Child Is This?
In the Army National Guard, soldiers serve part-time and close to home. My community means everything to me. It helped shape me into who I am today and is where I choose to raise my own family. That's why I joined the Army National Guard. I'm proud of where I'm from. And as a soldier, I get to give back to the people that helped me succeed. The education benefits I got from serving helped me get my degree and jumpstart my career. The training and leadership skills I've gained from the Army National Guard help me every day when I teach young people, help my neighbors, and look out for my community. I know that when my neighbors need us the most, my fellow soldiers and I will be ready. My family loves it here, and my part-time service means we get to stay here. Serve part-time in the community you live in as a proud member of the Army National Guard. Talk to your local recruiter or visit nationalguard.com. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard. Aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. I'm Johnette Cruz and I'm a busy mom. Then a friend told me about TrustBlueReview.com, a new website powered by the Christian Blue Network. She uses it to find trusted Christian-owned businesses. I checked it out, read the helpful reviews, and found a great family dentist. Now I use TrustBlueReview for all my family's needs. For peace of mind, do what I did. Visit TrustBlueReview.com or download their free mobile app from your app store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue Review. Will my kids like this dentist? Can I trust this mechanic? Who's a good choice for my upcoming remodel? I found businesses I can trust from TrustBlueReview.com. This company rebuilt our deck and renovated our bathroom. I'd highly recommend them to anyone looking to hire an honest contractor. The best dentist experience I've ever had. It's now easy to find trusted businesses in my community that have the same Christian values as my family. It all starts at TrustBlueReview.com or download their app in the App Store today. The trusted source for all you do. Trust Blue the following is a previously aired broadcast. Welcome to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. Stay tuned for an analysis and conversation about the issues that matter most to you and your family. Here now with this week's edition of News in Focus is Chris Long. Christmas to you, and welcome to this edition of News in Focus, the great carols of uh, the season, of the Christmas season, of course, the great carols of our faith. Reading from Isaiah chapter six of chapter 9, and verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Well, welcome to the program. We're going to talk today about the carols of the faith uh, and, of course, of the season. And, of course, the, the old uh, Christmas carols were really loaded with Scripture, and they actually were uh, written from a foundation of our faith. Here to talk to us about it is our good friend Bill Fetter of the American Minute. 
and uh, also an advisor of the Ohio Christian Alliance Committee. And Bill speaks all across the uh, country, also as a uh, as a speaker and historian and, a, and an author. Bill, welcome to the program. Chris, great to be with you. Well, and Merry Christmas to you, my friend. Well, Merry Christmas to you and all the listeners. Well, Bill, I I was uh, looking at one of the posts that you put up about uh, Charles Wesley, and of course he was the one who wrote this song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And uh, when we think about, really, the great uh, hymns of our faith and and those with Christmas themes in them, uh, these authors uh, from their, you know, uh, Christian leaders put it, uh, uh, really, doctrine to pen. We don't see that in today's contemporary Christian music too much, uh, but really, and of course, a lot of uh, the the uh, radio stations will just play uh, the instrumentals. We don't actually hear this, the the uh, words, but the words are powerful, and they're uh, really the uh, uh, strong orthodoxy in the script within uh, these Christmas carols. Your thoughts? Well, there really is, and I love the verse in Mark where it says, "The Son of uh, God came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many." And that is such an important theme that comes out in a lot of these Christmas carols, that that God is a just God. He cannot help it. That's him. He's just, which means he has to judge every sin. And uh, in a sense, that's been implanted in us so much that every police drama you see on TV starts off with an injustice done in the first two minutes, right? NCIS, somebody's killed. You're held, held captive the rest of the hour, wanting the person that did it to be brought to justice. You just know they got to get caught. And so God, uh, when there's a sin, he feels this pull to have to judge it. Well, what did, what did he do? He himself provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. And so Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus voluntarily became the lamb, took the punishment for all of our sin. And so we can approach God not based on us being good enough to go to heaven. We're not good enough, but he was good enough to give his life a ransom for many. So that's what we celebrate at Christmas, and that's what comes out in so many of these classic Christmas themes, that God and sinners reconciled. Well, that's right. And, of course, uh, it was Charles Wesley who wrote uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, actually one of my favorites. And, uh, of course, his brother John Wesley was the famed evangelist, and really Charles was an evangelist as well, but really he was the worship leader of that... um, great movement, the Wesleyan movement, uh, which was so instrumental, of course, in laying the foundation uh, for the Great Awakening in this country, which uh, eventually led to the Revolutionary War period, in which, uh, uh, you know, the colonists did not want to be subjugated in tyranny under Great Britain, but wanted to uh, experience that freedom that the Pilgrims, of course, came forward uh, in, in 1620, which we're about to celebrate here in just a few years, the 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims landing in Plymouth. But, um, of course, the, the Great Awakening, the seeds of it, was the, the Wesleyan Revival. What your thoughts on that? Yes, it was uh, so important. Uh, so, for those not familiar, James Oglethorpe is fighting the Muslims in Serbia around 1714, uh, 1718, and he then goes back to England, and he uh, has a friend, uh, he joins the parliament, and he has a friend die in debtor's prison. What's that? Well, in England, if you got put in prison, um, they wouldn't feed you. You would have to have some. <laughs> they would say, hey, where's Joe? And they would find out you're in prison, they'd bring you food. 
And so uh, when James Oglethorpe's friend died, he got into prison reformation, but then he decided to start a colony in the New World so that debtors and uh, persecuted Christians could have a fresh start. And so he comes over in 1732, and who does he have as the Anglican minister for his new colony but John Wesley, and who is his secretary but Charles Wesley? And uh, now Charles Wesley, um, you know, they were brothers, uh, but uh, Charles uh, was the uh, the youngest of like 18 children, and um, <laughs> he was born in 1707. Uh, his mother, raising all these 18 kids, uh, taught them all Latin and Greek in the classics, and he was brilliant and got a scholarship to Oxford. And he came under the notice of Garrett Wesley, uh, who was also in Parliament. He offers to adopt young Charles Wesley and have him be the one to inherit his enormous estate in Ireland. Uh, but Charles Wesley says no. And uh, and so he, the estate ends up going to um, uh, Arthur Wellesley, who's the Duke of Wellington, who defeats Napoleon at the Battle of Waterloo. But um, nevertheless, Charles Wesley uh, writes 6,000 hymns. And uh, as you mentioned, 6, he's 6,000, and he's basically the the spiritual uh, impetus for the Wesleyan movement. And uh, the, the Wesleys got their friend George Whitfield to uh, get touched by the Holy Spirit. He became a preacher. He came seven times to the United States, up and down. Ben Franklin printed George Whitfield's sermon to the start of the Great Awakening Revival. Could you imagine? He would preach to 20,000 people without a microphone. <laughs> You really had to belt it out. Um, but this revival spread, and uh, it helped unite the colonies prior to the, uh, the Revolutionary War. But um, I love the, the words that Charles Wesley wrote. Um, Hark the herald angels sing glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And so that's the, the theme. That the You know, theme, it, but, Bill, um, what it is, it's really the gospel— Within these within these verses in this hymn and uh, in this Christmas Carol, and um, you know this is what's interesting is that the sound doctrine that's in these old hymns that's in these Christmas carols and people sing them every year, uh, and you know that's why I think caroling is so important so that people you know who normally don't read the Bible who normally don't. Uh, you know, maybe even attend church, but they'll start reading, they'll start singing some of these carols uh, because of the season and to get in the spirit of things. And here they are actually reading the gospel and they're they're uh, reading scripture. And so I think that's so powerful. You know, one of the things about the Wesleyans too is that they had association with the Morav- Moravian missionaries. And of course, you've talked about that in your lecture series. The Moravians, of course, were really people on fire for the gospel, the simplicity of the gospel, and to send missionaries out all around the world. Um, and you'd, you'd referenced uh, their relationship with the, the Moravian missionaries before they came back to America. Right. John Wesley uh, was invited by the Moravians uh, to a prayer meeting, and that's where it's called Aldersgate. Uh, and then that's where he gets touched by the Holy Spirit. He gets that was strangely warmed in my heart. And, uh, and he goes over to Germany, to what's near Prague and in the Czech Republic, and he visits the Moravians. And um, the Moravians were started by Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Uh, for those not familiar, uh, 
Martin Luther starts the Reformation 1517 because he had a spiritual experience. Some princes wanted to break away from Rome. They said, this is our chance. And they said, kingdom of mine, you are all, all now Lutheran. And the people said, okay, okay, king, we're Lutheran. Uh, what do we believe? So the, the people in these kingdoms, it was not necessarily the same personal experience with the Lord that Martin Luther had. So a revival movement starts in the Lutheran churches called pietism that uh, says being a Christian is more than, than just agreeing with doctrine. You have to have a personal encounter with Jesus. And when you do, your life will change and you'll no longer go to the whirly bars and brothels and blue theaters and so forth. And, uh, and so this uh, Moravian revival movement swept uh, and it influenced the Wesleys, and then this swept the colonies in America. And uh, anyway, I could go on and on. But um, at the same time that uh, Charles Wesley, uh, matter of fact, the year Charles Wesley was born, uh, there was another uh, church leader named Isaac Watts, and he's the one who wrote Joy to the World. And so it was really popular in the colonies at that time. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ. You know, it, it goes through the gospel message as well, and um, uh, handles Messiah, uh, and the, the Come All Ye Faithful. This was a really popular one, published in 1751. Um, so what does that mean? That means that the colonists probably sang this, you know. Um, you know, it, it's interesting, um, singing, worship songs, is a Christian idea. Um, there's not a whole lot of singing that goes on in Islam. Matter of fact, uh, it's actually forbidden. Uh, they recite and they chant, but it's not making up a song in your heart uh, to, to God. They don't sing songs to Allah. Uh, Hinduism, there's 300 you know, million different gods. They're, every family basically has their own God, and they, they really don't have singing. Buddhism, you don't really sing to you know, the, whatever the... the, the belief system is, you know, you, you do meditations and chantings and so forth and ums, uh, but it's not singing. Um, and uh, no, no, there is in Judaism, it says that Jesus sang a hymn with the uh, disciples before he went out to Mount, Mount of Olives and so forth. And um, and the, the Bible talks about, you know, the trees of the field clapped their hands and, and the tambourine and, and Miriam's song, you know, I'll sing and, and to the, the Lord for say- gloriously. And the scriptures say, sing a new song unto the Lord. I mean, I never thought about that, Bill. That's so true, that in Christianity and Judean Christian circles, it's about song, and some of the other religions are not. I mean, as you mentioned, Islam, uh, Hindu, Buddhist, they don't sing, they chant. Uh, but in Christ- Christendom, and, and of course, uh, in, in um, Hebrew, uh, they do sing. And it, it's, it's, a, it's a Judean Christian experience and never thought about it like that. It's, it's fascinating. You know, one of the things that I heard recently, because I'm looking at the uh, American Minute on this that uh, actually prompted our interview, but uh, Susan Wesley homeschooled the 19 children that she birthed, among which was John and Charles, and taught them classical education, including Latin and Greek. And someone said to me, a hundred years ago in this country, we, we used to uh, learn Latin and Greek in in high school now we're learning remedial english in in uh college I, that's how far we've fallen off the mark in education in our in our uh, country it's uh, it's very sad to to see it but go on well you're hitting on a key point um and one of the books i wrote uh you know who's the king in america 
I go through all the world's history, show the most common form of government is the king. And in these, you know, whether it's a Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultan, Tsar, and only the kings in the upper class could read. Only 1% of Egypt could read. Reading and writing was the, the scribe's secret knowledge, and just the pharaohs and the scribes knew it. And um, and they had, uh, you know, 10,000 Chinese characters. It was just for court records for the Chinese emperor. Uh, you know, there were 1,500 cuneiform characters in Sumeria. It was just for the kings. Um, when Moses comes down the mountain, he has the law in 22 characters. 22, it's so easy to learn. Kids could learn it. And so Israel is the first literate populace. And so we see for a country, and for 400 years, Israel didn't have a king. And it was the people that ruled, and each person individually was accountable to God. And um, and so we, we find out that uh, for a, a people to rule themselves without a king, the people need to be educated and moral. And uh, you give up morals and you give up education, then you have a populace that can be controlled by the deep state class that uh, they have all the secret knowledge and, and they're calling, pulling, calling the shots. So, um, so yeah, so uh, one of the different studies that I read, uh, Robert Woodbury, Baylor University, studied countries that uh, missionaries went to in the 1800s and found that the ones where Protestant conversionary missionaries went to, they ended up teaching everybody to read so they could read the Bible, but it produced a literate populace and uh, an upward mobility in society. And the ones where, you know, uh, other churches uh, that weren't conversionary um, uh, didn't teach the people to read. They just swapped out the pagan God for the Christian God, and, and the common person just um, learned how to obey the uh, the intermediary church leaders and um, and they didn't today don't have that upward mobility in those countries are poor and it's a repeatable study right and so the ones that they, they went to and they taught them to read taught them the Bible those countries are in fact more prosperous today and um, but w- one of the other uh, things I like to look at is some of the famous composers and uh, you know Johann Sebastian Bach uh, he wrote a Christmas oratorio. And um, Handel wrote the Messiah. Oh, the, 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 the Messiah is one of my favorites. Of course, he he wrote it all in one sitting, and he said as if he said it, it, it's as if he had because uh, he closed himself off into a room and he wrote it all in one sitting. And he said it's as if the heavens were opened onto me. He had obviously a spiritual experience. I love Handel's Messiah. Bill, your thoughts? Oh, definitely, and. There, you know, one of the uh, Supreme Court cases um, back in uh, 1948, it was McCullum versus Board of Education. Justice Jackson says it would not seem practical to teach arts if we were to forbid exposure of youth to any religious influence. Music without sacred music would be incomplete, even from a secular point of view. And so you go back in history, sacred music was a key part of it. You had Joseph Haydn. And he did a uh, Christmas Day performance. You have Mozart did a Christmas Eve performance. Uh, Felix Mendelssohn was a Lutheran composer. And um, matter of fact, his father was a Jewish rabbi, uh, uh, Moses Mendelssohn. But um, uh, Felix Mendelssohn wrote the tune for Hark the Herald Angel Sing. So Wesley wrote the words, and Mendelssohn wrote the, the tune. Um, then you have... Uh, Franz Liszt did a Christmas tree suite, and um, but then Beethoven, and he uh, wrote different um, 
Christmas pieces that became famous and um, Isaac, so, Isaac so you, Watts, uh, Isaac Watts writing, uh, composing "Joy to the World." Yes, yes. Um, so in my different presentations, I go through, you know, uh, all the different names. Robert Schumann did an album for young for Advent and Christmas. Advent was the days leading up to Christmas. Um, there's Brahms' Lullaby, and in German, we we all know the tune. You know, well, in German, it's a Christmas song. Um, and um, then I could go on and on. But um, it's fascinating when we, uh, and many of them were written during the Civil War. And that's also a special period of time. We're talking with Bill Fetter, uh, author and historian. And of course, uh, uh, the American Minute is something that you can receive every day in your inbox. Uh, which is Today in American History, and also uh, Bill is on the TCT Network, Faith in History. Um, uh, when can people tune in to you on TCT Network, Bill? Well, anytime if they want to go to uh, the tct.tv website or Roku, uh, you can get it on demand, or they have to look at their schedule for the area. Oh, um, for, for the area, but- right. And and uh, we've been watching that program as well and enjoying your series on TCT and uh, your lectures there. Bill also has a number of books, uh, What Every American Needs to Know About the Koran, uh, the, the Encyclopedia of Quotations, uh, so many books that Bill has written uh, over the years, and of course the uh, story behind the real Santa Claus. Uh, but today we wanted to focus on uh, the great carols and hymns of the faith around the Christian and Christmas uh, theme, uh, Bill. You know this is this was a great uh, study here. Um, how can also people get the American Minute? Well, my website's AmericanMinute.com, and I send out a free daily email called American Minute. And uh, the ones at this time of the year usually are on Christmas. Um, I actually talk about Valley Forge, and one of the Christmas songs that was popular in the states at that time was uh, God rest you merry gentlemen. Uh, let nothing you dismay, for Jesus Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray, or tidings of comfort and joy. Tidings of comfort and joy. Uh, talk about the, the gospel message in that, wow. But um, anyway, yeah, AmericanMinute.com, and uh, I did a book on Christmas called There Really is a Santa Claus, The History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. Well, Bill, thank you so much for coming on the program today, and, uh, you know, this has been a real joy. And again, folks, I, I would encourage you to go to uh, Bill's website and, again, get the uh, email, AmericanMinute.com is a uh, way you can get there. Let's see if we uh, – uh, that is that the uh, web address, Bill? Correct, yes. AmericanMinute.com, and you can receive this in your inbox and, of course, see all the different books that – Bill makes available. He's also available to be a speaker. So if you need uh, someone to come and speak at your church uh, or community group, uh, he's available for that as well. But go to AmericanMinute.com. Bill, thanks so much for being my guest today. Well, thank you, Chris. And uh, there, I don't know if I had a minute more before your break. Um, but Yes, go uh, ahead. The de- okay, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were um, found in the 1940s and 50s, and lo and behold, a Jewish scholar found among them the sacerdotal rota. What's that? 
It was King David divided the sons of Aaron into 24 groups and gave him each a time to go to the temple. And he found the family of Abijah, and the time they go to the temple works out to being the end of September. Why is that important? Well, this, uh, the gospel says that the father of Zacharias was in the temple, and he was of the family of Abijah, the course of Abijah, which means he would have been in the temple around September 25th. That's when Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, usually is. And if his wife Elizabeth gets pregnant, six months later would be March 25th. And when Mary is visited by the angel, tells her she's going to have Jesus, uh, it says, and your cousin Elizabeth is in her sixth month, which means the angel visits Mary around March 25th, and nine months later is December 25th. Lo and behold, the Dead Sea Scrolls help confirm that the date of Christmas uh, is historically December 25th. Well, you know, there's been some debate about that, and they said that normally shepherds are not in the field, but there is a particular group of uh, shepherds, and that is for lambs that are ready for the temple. Uh, so the shepherds, indeed, that were there that the angels came and appeared onto were probably shepherds overseeing the flock of uh, lambs that would eventually be sacrificed in the temple. And so how symbolic is that? Because Jesus was, of course, the lamb uh, of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And we'd just like to leave you with this verse of Scripture in Isaiah seven fourteen. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, Merry Christmas to all of you, my friends, and uh, God bless you, and we thank you for listening and supporting the News in Focus, and we love to come to you each week this at this same time. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in, and Bill, thanks for coming on the program today, my friend, and God bless you, and Merry Christmas to you and your family. Oh, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good night. God bless. You have been listening to News in Focus with your host, Chris Long, president of the Ohio Christian Alliance. To learn more about the issues that matter most to you and your family, visit online at ohioca.org. That's ohioca.org. Thank you for listening. This program is sponsored by the Ohio Christian Alliance of Akron, Ohio.